Welcome to the Marshall Graham Interviews. With last week's upload of the interview with Dr. Bill Zemba, that completes our 10 interviews that I recorded for my Econ 265, the Economics of Racetrack Wagering Markets class at Rhodes College. So why am I back? Why are we here? Well, I still got a couple more interviews that I want to do. I'm not ready to close the book on the series just yet. There's some topics that we left uninvestigated, and one of them was pedigree. So this week, I'm joined by Jessica Tugwell of Hawkstone Bloodstock. She's a pedigree expert and has just started her pedigree consulting business, and she has a free newsletter that's worth signing up for. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I once again want to thank Millridge Farm. They've been generous sponsors. They've made a generous donation to the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation in return for the sponsorship of this podcast. They stand Oscar Performance in Aloha West, so look to them if you want to consign your sales horse or breed to an up-and-coming stallion. Thanks once again to Millridge Farm. All right, I have Jessica Tugwell, pedigree expert with me to, to talk about all our questions with pedigree and handicapping and and breeding and and uh, all sorts of stuff. So first of all, Jessica, tell me a little bit about how you got into horse racing in general and uh, pedigrees in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So I basically fell in love with horses in third grade when I read The Black Stallion. And then from there, my dad has always been a handicapper, gambler, horse player. So in uh, 2004, I was watching the Breeders' Cup with him and I saw a pretty black horse. Um, I was 11 years old at the time and I wanted the pretty black horse to win because I had seen that pretty black horse win a race earlier in the year. And that pretty black horse was better talk now. And he came rolling from the back of the pack to win the Breeders' Cup turf. And that was basically it. I was completely hooked. And the pedigree side of things was just natural for me because I've always been fascinated by genetics. In fifth grade, I learned about horse color genetics and I would literally write out like little punnet squares or like write out the um, genetics of different colored horses and then pretend that, okay, if I crossed these horses, this was the color of their baby and things like that. So studying uh, pedigrees was just a natural side of the sport that I gravitated toward from the beginning. So how, how, how do you apply it in, in handicapping? What's the sort of methodology that you would, you would take a pedigree and, and work with it in the handicapping space? Yeah, when it comes to handicapping, I honestly, um, frankly, don't put a huge amount of stock in pedigree except for horses that are doing things for the first time or first time starters. So for instance, I'll look definitely at mostly a mare's produce record when it comes to handicapping. I think that's really the most simple, straightforward, easiest, helpful thing you can do is, okay, so what kind of siblings does this horse have? And then also the progeny of the sire, you know, if, okay, this, this is a horse by more than ready trying the turf for the first time. I might bet that horse just because maybe show nothing on dirt, but more than ready is a great turf sire. So you give them a little extra edge in that case, or, and then, you know, you have different stallions whose offspring tend to mature a little later, like Curlin. So there are things like that, that you take into account. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it can also lead you wrong because for the longest time I refused to bet into mischiefs in the Kentucky Derby and then authentic one. So it doesn't always work out the way you, you think it will. Well, when like, and you bring up the sort of age old question of stallion or mare. So I do think initially, you know, in handicapping, like you say, surface changes or first time starters or sprint to route, there was such a great emphasis on the stallion because it's what everyone knows and they have mm-hmm. such a huge sample size, but you know, now people are more looking at, at mares and we have such we have these outliers that, that i would have thought were outliers we have successful turf horses out of dirt stallions or vice mm-hmm. versa that clearly must have something going on with the mare family so so when you're sort of weighting that you know the stallion or mare both in terms of breeding and in terms of these horses doing things for the first time is that something you give equal weight to is the mare more important what are your thoughts there i usually give when handicapping i give slightly more weight to the mare just because that's less you get more value that way I think that you're more likely to find something that other people aren't looking at but I do want to take both sides of the pedigree into account when handicapping I think both are important but that if you're looking for an edge that someone else doesn't necessarily have then that's where looking at the mare and the female family can be more helpful I think what kind of differences I mean do you have any sort of philosophies on this sort of turf versus dirt versus synth or is that just in some ways pedigree based 
I'm not really sure. I've heard a lot of people, you know, I know people talk about, you know, having a big flat turf hoof that horses with higher action tend to move better on the turf, things like that. But a lot of times, you know, when handicapping, you don't necessarily have that type of information. And you can sometimes get a feel like when you're looking at a horse in a paddock for whether they, for instance, take after their sire or maybe their damn sire more, which is something that you can kind of, I feel like you kind of develop just by looking at a lot of horses and paying attention to their pedigrees. I've often wondered, for example, like I think a pioneer of the Nile is a dirt sire and then American Pharaoh is a turf sire. That's probably overly simplistic, but we in, in I guess American Pharaoh's damn sire is what Yankee gentleman. Yankee gentleman who I also think of as dirt, right? So it, it's, it's. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying. Yeah, to it. me, I feel like that kind of goes back to Empire Maker. Okay. We've got a lot of good turf horses, even though Pioneer the Nile was a dirt horse and got mostly dirt horses. I kind of wonder if that's kind of coming back through to that Empire Maker blood. He had like Mushka was a really good turf filly, for instance. And so when you're thinking about like sires, especially like first time sires, is that something that as much as their race record's meaningful, you'll look in in their, their further back pedigree to indi- indicate what they might want to do. Yeah, definitely. For me, when evaluating sires, I I like to look, you know, as far back as like fifth, sixth generation, even to find certain things that tend to come through in top sires, certain repeated ancestors, things like uh, even like a d- deep female family. There are certain female families that just consistently pop out really good stallions. For instance, family 13C. You have, and for those who don't know, those family numbers were created by a guy called Bruce Lowe back, I think, early 1900s. I can't remember actually off the top mm-hmm. of my head when, mm-hmm. when he did this, but he tallied up the winners of the English classics based on their female line as far back as he could trace them and then numbered them. Family one had the most, family two had the second most, et cetera, going through. And those families have since been updated and they've been given subfamilies. So those are, uh, a way to kind of track female families. And there has with modern technology, there have been, uh, and tracing like mitochondrial lines, people have found that there are errors in the stud books, but it still makes a pretty easy way to generally group horses. And for instance, um, as I was saying, like family 13C going back, especially going back to the Mare Frisette, you have Mr. Prospector, Seattle Slough, Forestry, Quality Road, and Elusive Quality, Bolt Oro. You have all of these horses that are really have been really great stallions who all come from this same mare mitochondrial line. So I think that that, that there's something to that. And there are other families as well that just seem to, you seem to find them more often as good stallions. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack there because the, the Bruce Lowe stuff I find, I find fascinating. And I, I guess we'll, we'll sort of go off that, that tangent right now. Is that something that, that as a pedigree expert, if you're looking at, the yearling sales, but you're looking at broodmares, is that something that that is of the utmost importance? And and how far back do we start looking? You know, how far is too far back? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the question um, I'm really trying to figure out the balance for personally in my analysis now at this point, you know, is like, okay, am I getting too far back at a certain point? But then at this on, you know, kind of a different note, it's not as if there are completely different genetics being passed on. It's not as if the breed has developed or mutated. These are still very much the same sort of deck of cards, so to speak, that have been shuffled around genetically, even if, you know, an ancestor's influence is only like a small, tiny percentage, there is still a chance that the same genes have been passed on, however slim that chance might be. And there's also the fact that, say, you have two different horses from the same female family mitochondrial line distantly and they were both good horses. And then you're bringing in genetics that worked well with each of them as you continue to have good ancestors. So then kind of my hope is that by bringing back horses from that same mitochondrial line on each other, you're hopefully having a better chance of genetics, nuclear DNA that works well with that mitochondrial DNA, so to speak, if that so, makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk about in in breeding line breeding in, in just a bit so are these these bruce low numbers are they still i mean i guess if people look back and seen is there still like this this rank order that he had of one through you know whatever the number might be you've mentioned a, a you know family 13 bruce low number what was the number you mentioned yeah 13 c 13 c is there, is there still i know that like family one you see a ton because of like one x is la Troyenne, right mm-hmm. but uh 
one's still better than two, still better than three, and, and so forth, or have other numbers come up like 23 or 13? Yeah, I don't believe that there's really um, that ranking really holds so much anymore. I think there have been like studies done showing that they don't really rank like that so much anymore. And, you know, like Family 23 is actually the family with the most members in the Hall of Fame, hmm. uh, for instance, uh, in American, the American Hall of Fame. Although, notably, that family is actually too distinct. There are two different lines mitochondrially that, uh, you know, genetic testing has shown that members of Family 23B tracing back to the mayor Lizzie G, who was famously the Dam of Domino, mm-hmm. um, are actually a separate mitochondrial family than other members of the family 23B, which I found interesting. So I have I have two mares. I mean, the, the mother and daughter who from 23B, the first horse I ever claimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aunt Dot Dot, who's became my broodmare, uh, she was from family 23B. And so she, and 23B, at least for me, it was interesting because it traced back to like Chief's Crown, what is it, Six Crowns and uh, yes. Chris Everett, right? Yes. So that was, yes. that was, you know, my interest in terms of the far back pedigree. There was not much going on up close. I didn't quite know what I was doing. I thought it was interesting, a potential broodmare for $5,000. Mm-hmm. I, I dropped on her and won a three-way shake when she was in for five grand. Totally didn't know what I was doing. Got offered $10,000 on the spot for her when I won the shake oh. and um, and turned it down. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> like, I, nowadays, I'd, like, walk away with a five grand profit. I could have walked away with five grand and never been involved in racing. You know, all of a sudden, now I have, you know, more racehorses that I know what to do with. And But she's been a great broodmare for me produced a couple stakes winners uh, I have her and her daughter and I was I have you know I was looking up looking at this now I have I have gotten involved in breeding because we're I'm standing warriors charge in we're standing warriors charge in New York uh, he ran fourth in the Preakness he's a Munnings and Munnings are you know Munnings is we've been longtime fans of Munnings and and we mm-hmm. bred him when he was standing for 15 and 25 he now stands for 100 so you know here's a nice alternative you can go to New York he stands for for five grand but I have 16 broodmares and I do have three from family one, two from family two. So there's, there's some ordering there. Uh, what about these sort of American half-bred families? Is that like, uh, like Gulch is from family a four, mm-hmm. right? And I have a mare from family a four, Alex, Alex, her name is Alexandrite. Is that, is that something that just is, is an error uh, in the breeding? No, those are more families that were added later. Like for instance, family a four, they are a related mitochondrial type to family one, I believe it is. So yeah, family A4 actually is from the N1A mitochondrial haplotype, which is mm-hmm. the same mitochondrial haplogroup N as family one, actually. So that family that, you know, use that as you will, but genetically this family shares the same ancestor as family one. And for instance, uh, family A1 shares the same mitochondrial haplotype as most of family nine. I know nothing about biology. Um, I did really poorly in biology so, in college. So what is so yeah. what does all that mean? In in you know what comes down the mare line? I assume there's some sort of similar thing that comes down the stallion line. What does all that mean? Yeah. So mitochondrial DNA is inherited matrilineally from the mother, and it basically, with the exception of mutations, it remains unchanged. So it's how you know in humans we trace lineage in in basically any species. You can trace lineage back pretty much indefinitely via mitochondrial DNA. So you receive mitochondrial DNA from your mother and then nuclear DNA from both parents. And the reason this is fairly important is because the mitochondria is the part of the cell that converts food to energy. And it doesn't take a lot to understand why that would be important for racehorses. And while there haven't necessarily been, there hasn't been any proof that any mitochondrial type is better than the other at performance, but there does seem to be certain correlations uh, as far as which ones work well, which ones whose nuclear DNA works well with their mitochondrial DNA also works well with other members of this family. I'm not the best at articulating it, to be honest, but the basic idea is that you have this constant that you know. You can know that your mare is, you know, from family one and is from the N haplogroup and say this was a good mare. And then you breed her to a stallion from that same haplogroup, that same mitochondrial family. So even if they have no shared ancestors in, say, the first five generations, you know that they both have nuclear DNA that is compatible with that mitochondrial DNA. So in theory, there's a better chance of that foal having a successful genetic makeup. Okay, before we sort of deep dive into that, let's talk a little bit about 
inbreeding and line breeding, maybe if you could define both of these for me and we could talk a little bit about, you know, how much is too much or too little. Yeah, absolutely. So line breeding is a term that tends to mean different things to different people. I've noticed that everyone kind of, there isn't really one accepted definition of line breeding. Generally, I've seen it defined, you know, as any inbreeding to an ancestor via different sources of that ancestor. And then I've seen it, people say it's line breeding if it works, it's inbreeding if it doesn't. And I personally define line breeding as inbreeding to a common ancestor outside of the first five generations, since that tends to be what our sport defaults to looking at. That's generally how I define it. And then inbreeding is just a repeated ancestor, normally for me in the first five generations, but realistically, any repeated ancestor would be an ancestor that a horse is inbred to. So when we talk about line breeding, is it generally line breeding done through female families or is it, you know, trying to pick up certain stallions? What would be what would be sort uh, of a typical objective in line breeding? It depends on the person. Both are absolutely seen as objectives of line breeding. Personally, I love line breeding to female families. For instance, line breeding to La Troyenne's family 1X is something that I really love to see in a pedigree. But also, you know, you, there's also the term such as uh, sex balanced inbreeding, where you have a son and a daughter of a certain horse on each side of the pedigree that tends to be seen as beneficial because you're getting both the, for instance, if it's from a stallion, you're getting both a Y chromosome from that stallion in his son and an X chromosome from that stallion in his daughter, so that you're increasing your chances of getting whatever genetic material is carried on either chromosome in that distant offspring. So when you look at, when, when you look at a pedigree, you will then pull up, you know, the standard, I guess would be a three by three or five by five pedigree, right? So we're, Mm -hmm. but but you'll look further back or you'll know the horses enough and the families enough to go further back. Yeah, exactly. And what kind of tools do you use to do this? Um, Mostly uh, pedigreequery.com is just my go-to and I've compiled, I used to work in the racing office at Laurel Park and there's a lot of downtime. So I would, um, I started compiling my own reference sheet of stallions by female family that I've been working on for the last four years now uh, that every time I find a new stallion, I put in his female family. And then when a mare, a certain ancestor has, you know, say three stallions under her, I'll give her her own subdivision. So I use that document. I have a lot when I'm looking for, you know, looking at pedigrees and especially looking at matings and trying to bring in those female lines that are prominent in a mare via a stallion. Now, with inbreeding, what, how, how much would be, would be too much? Is there, or, or is there like, you know, that you've seen a lot of successful stallions who are, you know, a lot of successful racehorses, stallions three by three, what is too much? And, and is this something we really know? That's, I don't think that is something we really know. That's something that's largely subjective. There have been studies showing that a higher coefficient of inbreeding, which is just a measure of inbreeding is negatively correlated with racetrack success. However, you have horses like Rich Strike, who was inbred three by two to Smart Strike. So it's clearly not a hard rule. And personally, I like to keep inbreeding out of the first three generations. That's just Mm -hmm. a personal thinking of trying to get a little more sort of hybrid vigor in a horse. But it's really a to each his own type of situation. Some people are more willing to look at closer inbreeding. And I also, you know, I'm not it's not a hard rule for me either, if it makes sense in every other mm-hmm. aspect, physically and such. Well, is, is there like, uh, you know, what I always hear is there potential soundness issues, but I don't, you know, again, I've not seen, I've never seen a comprehensive study on that to to verify it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I haven't either. You And that's, you would think that there is also, in addition to, you know, having a higher chance of getting your desirable traits in close inbreeding, there's also a higher chance of getting undesirable traits uh, when you have close inbreeding like that. Mm-hmm. With the close inbreeding, is there, uh, you know, I, I know that, you know, with all these successful stallions, you hear about potential issues they had, which caused them to race infrequently, and that inbreeding to particular stallions might be problematic or might be advantageous. Are there particular stallions? Let's let's first talk about the inbreeding part that 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 you like to to see, you know, multiple lines. Obviously, you, we can't get away from multiple lines of Mr. Prospect or Northern Dancer, right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, That's you're always going to get that. There have been stallions that it seems like 
at least anecdotally, for instance, horses with multiple lines of arch, mm -hmm. I've seen quite a few of that tend to do well. Whereas um, on the other side, I'm at a point where I'm a little wary of inbreeding too closely to AP Indy. Uh, I just feel like I've liked too many horses that were inbred to AP Indy that ended up not really working out the way I thought they would. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot of research on it. I do use the site Grade 1 Goldmine, and AP mm. Indy inbreeding does tend to produce a slightly lower percentage of stakes winners than inbreeding to some other key horses. But it it's hard to say. There have also been so many horses, uh, such a large sample size that it's hard to say. Yeah, it's interesting. We're moving into an era where we have so many, you know, where the book size has increased by so much. It, it doesn't matter necessarily what the size of the books were for for dancing, AP and D, Stormcat, but their sons have proliferated to where they have huge books. And it'd be interesting to see what that, you know, how that affects, you know, our measures of inbreeding and, uh, you know, like what, any any thoughts on inbreeding the Stormcat? Um, that's one that I, again, I don't have any statistics on it, but would be a little bit wary of just because he was a horse who had a short career, who was by Northern Dancer, who a lot of people like kind of credit with the unsoundness in the breed, but it's definitely something that's happened and it has happened successfully. I'm, I'm sure. Now, I, I, I guess maybe this is a, I don't know whether this is still a, a legit theory or not. There was this large heart. Uh, maybe inbreeding to inbreeding to to females that would sort of push the large heart uh, X heart or they maybe yeah the X it. factor theory yeah. yeah I'm familiar with that theory and I think I think I've I've read that it has been debunked but I've never read anybody actually debunking it mm -hmm. my assumption would be that because um, the whole theory was kind of based on that there was like a gene that was an X linked gene that caused like a large heart and while my assumption would be that if it was debunked, it was that a large heart could definitely could possibly be a, you know, a multifactorial type of thing, something that it's not just you either have the large heart gene or you don't. But I think that that theory definitely that there is definitely some merit to the idea of something along that X link where you have certain stallions who have better fillies than Colts. And, you know, they're a better broodmare stallion, such as uh, Secretariat was generally a better broodmare sire than he was a sire. So I think that that you can follow the, that in a sor sort of the same way that the X Factor theory proposes, that there's there's something there, whether it's necessarily a quote unquote distinguishable large heart gene or not. I do think that following the X chromosome in a pedigree back to those key stallions who were really good broodmare stallions. I think that there's um, something to be said for that. So do you think in, in this, this is another, I'm just going to keep wandering off on tangents here. Do you think there is something to being, there is something to be being a broodmare stallion in and of itself? Uh, I've always assumed that maybe in part, a good broodmare stallion was just a stallion who happened to get a lot of good mares. And that's sort of what's pushing the equation. But do you believe it's in, independent that there really is something to, maybe Bernardini or Secretariat being excellent broodmare stallions? I think it's definitely a combination of factors. If the horse stallion isn't getting good mares, he is not going to be a good broodmare stallion. But I do think that there is something to the idea of there being something about those stallions where whatever, and you know, I personally do not know how, you know, which traits genetically are linked, if any, to say to the X chromosome in horses, but for instance, Bernardini, his broodmare sire was quiet American and both his dam and his, uh, or his dam was by Dr. Fager, quiet American's dam was by Dr. Fager and his sire Fabiana was out of a Dr. Fager mare. Also, he was inbred to his third dam, who was the third dam of his sire Fabiano. So there is a ton of this strong female family between Dr. Fager's dam Aspidistra and quite American and Fabiano's third dam Sequilo that is coming through as the broodmare sire of Bernardini. So it's interesting that, you know, his dam got an X chromosome from quiet American. And now it seems that his daughter, Bernardini's daughters in turn are also producing at a better than average rate. So I think that there is something to, that huge female family influence from his damn sire coming in and coming out through his daughter's offspring. 
What about like outcrosses? I, I know, especially sort of the history of breeding in America, you know, a lot of stories about bringing in European English stallions uh, to provide outcrosses. Bo Hancock bringing in, you know, Mar- uh, stallions to, again, provide an outcross. What is your, what is your thought about outcross? I think that's something that the current breeding scheme doesn't really do enough of that. Uh, I think that's something that would definitely be healthy for the breed as a whole is to try and get some of that blood. For instance, you know, I see how Japan has been buying a lot of American mares uh, for their stallions and to outcross too. And it's certainly seems to be working for them. And that getting importing stallions is something that doesn't really happen anymore. And I think that is something that would be, and when it does happen, like for instance, when uh, Lonro stood a few seasons in Kentucky, he was basically ignored, even though he was, he's one of the best stallions in Australia. So it just hasn't really worked. And I think a lot of that is just due to the commercial market and the fact that there's only a few stallions, realistically, a handful of the percentage of stallions that are going to give you a sales horse. And that a lot of breeders are now, they're focusing more on breeding a horse that's going to sell, which makes sense in, you know, as far as a business, from a business perspective, but I don't think it necessarily does the breed any favors. Do we really, I mean, is there really a, a good outcross stallion standing here? I mean, they all, you know, are loaded with Northern Dancer, Mr. Prospector, AP and, you know, Seattle Slough. Um, and not many that, um, none that I can think of off the top of my head and certainly none that are at like the top of the sire lists or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's, you know, like we, the, you know, I don't know what percentage of yearlings actually go through the sales, but it's a huge number, right? It's, it's maybe mm-hmm. a third. And, you know, how often are breeders now planning meetings where they're doing what you're doing, what you're talking about, looking back generations, or just, you know, they're trying to take their good mare, breed it to the hot stallion, probably the hot new stallion, right? And then, yeah, absolutely. And then go from there. I think that is largely kind of what happens nowadays because that's how you're going to make money because you don't really make money racing horses. You make money breeding horses. So when you when you see a pedigree where, where you, you're, you know, you're really, your eyes light up and you get excited about it, is it typically a homebred pedigree? Or is it something that just went through the sales and they may even not have known what they were doing and it, it sort of caught your attention? Yeah, a lot of times I do find that they tend to be like homebreds. For instance, I love basically everything that Charles Fipke breeds. I love the way he seems to look at pedigrees from what I can at least infer based on looking at the horses. And like the Phipps family pedigrees are, I always seem to like those as well. That I feel like a lot of times they've kind of put a little more thought, maybe not even more thought into them, but they aren't bound by the constraints of the commercial market the way that other breeders are. Let's talk a little bit about sire lines. I mean, is the, are sire lines as important to you as female families? Yeah, for sire lines, I don't tend to give them as much stock. I do like to make sure that they work, that there's precedent to a mating, but I'm also completely willing to, you know, recommend a horse that is a C Nick because there's also broodmare sire lines going on and other aspects to the pedigree that if everything else works, but this stallion sons haven't done well with daughters of this stallion i'm not going to necessarily write it off immediately because say there's been 15 starters and none of them were a stakes winner so with nicking you don't you're not necessarily concerned because in part of the small sample size overall or you know what are your thoughts on nicking yeah i think i think nicking is a useful <laughs> and wait, tool, I, I guess but in it fairness, definitely... we, should, we, we should probably explain what nicking is So yeah, nicking would be the crossing of certain sire lines, essentially, that sons and grandsons of X stallion with daughters of Y stallion and his sons or grandsons. And there's a lot of good tools out there that will kind of rank this based on, okay, this each sire line produces this percentage, and then when they're combined of stakes winners, and then when they're combined, they produce this percentage of stakes winners, and you're either improving or not improving on those numbers. And I think that NICs are a useful tool and I do check NICs for matings, but I don't think that, I think that they're kind of reductive, that they're really kind of boiling this pedigree down to two factors when there are countless factors that go in to what makes a good horse. So I tend to, I pay attention to them, but I don't put a whole lot of weight in them necessarily. So is there a particular, there's, is there a particular Nick that you would be against or is not, you're not universal in anything like that? Nah, I'm not really universal in anything like that. There are Nicks that I really 
do like. For instance, the Spites Town Medagliadoro, Nick. I love that. And but I love that because to me, that's a female family, Nick. Spites Town and Medagliadoro share a tail female line. And Medagliadoro actually brings in another source of that as his um, I think he's bail jumper or not bail jumper. Uh, Silent Screen is his second or third dam sire, who is also from that same female family, 9B. So, and that's an example of where I like to try and figure out kind of what makes Nick's work and see if there's a factor besides just, this is a good horse, this is a good horse. And when you put them together, there's more good horses. And, you know, the Spite Town Medaglia Oro is also kind of just an extension of the super popular Mr. Prospector Northern Dancer, Nick, but they're coming from the same female line. So that's what I, I like a lot about that, Nick. Well, so these, so these sire lines, is there any, is the, there's no sort of DNA factors like there is with the female family. It's, it's well, irrelevant. Because the Y chromosome is coming through from the stallion. So there is still that, that same factor, the way that, you know, your mitochondrial DNA that, and again, I don't know necessarily what traits are linked to the Y chromosome in horses, but a, a stallion, a colt is going to get his Y chromosome from his sire. So there mm. is something to it in the same way that there is something to the female family blind breeding. But with the stallions, it's just not something I put as much stock in because there is also just stallions have so many foals that it's really hard to get a read sometimes for uh, how they're going to cross when you're looking at, you know, going all the way back. And I mean, nowadays, basically every stallion goes back to Polaris. Polaris. So they kind of are all, all Polaris crosses anyway. Yeah. So this is uh, Polaris is 1913 and that's from the Eclipse Sire line. And so, uh, you know, it's one thing that's made me very sad is I love, I love the Matrim Sire line, which goes back to Man War. And that's mm-hmm. basically Tis now is it, right? And yeah, I exactly. I don't know whether any son of Tis now is going to make it. And yeah, then the and then the the sire line from Domino, which is basically basically Broadbrush, right? And if you go back further, it's like with Himyar, it's Broadbrush and Holy Bull, mm-hmm. and 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 Broadbrush is uh, pretty coolly bred anyway, and was in kind of an awesome racehorse. And those are basically gone. I mean, Broadbrush has include. And, mm-hmm. I don't and think we just lost to... Include last year, which was a shame. Yeah, he's got a son redeemed. who's a regional stallion, and then uh, I tried to breed to Include, and they would they just pensioned him. And then I don't know, you know, maybe Mucho Macho Man, whose numbers aren't terrible if you sort of dig a little bit, but I just don't know that that um, Holy Bulls will be around much longer either. Yeah, exactly. That those stallions, they're just even if they they are good enough, they aren't going to get the kind of mares that are going to get them stallion sons in the grand scheme of things to be worried about in horse racing. That's probably on down the line, but from a, from a breeding perspective, is there anything, anything to that? Uh, you know, these sort of outcross sire lines that, that have just have gone away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's something that the breed should be, you know, breeders should be a lot more worried about than they are. Uh, that's one of the reasons I really like Bala Bali is because he's from that same man of war, um, the relaunch and reality sire line. But and I think, though, at this point, it's almost inevitable that those lines are going to disappear. And again, I think that goes back to kind of focusing on commercial breeding and breeding horses that sell well at auction and not necessarily focusing on breeding racehorses. And that I don't know if necessarily it's going to end up being a big deal, a big change that, you know, because this is just kind of what how the breed has developed. And, you know, we're still getting plenty of good horses from you know the Falaris line sire line but i think that it's something that the the breeders should kind of be paying attention to of trying to see if especially if you're breeding uh, like state breads that if there is a stallion like say mucho macho man or bala bali or redeemed even who works well with your mare kind of giving those horses an extra a little extra credit and trying to give them a chance to keep these outcrosses alive in the breed are there any matchum line overseas at all or is it just all i am not sure i'm not super familiar with the horses standing overseas to be honest with you mm-hmm. well and what you like the herod line so there are three foundation stallions right matchum mm-hmm. eclipse and herod and herod's i think gone 
you know, there's a while, there's a period of time where Herod was the, the dominant sire line. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, I think he's completely gone, right? I mean, yeah, certainly you gone. You only really find him in, in the, via his, via the dams of stallions nowadays. Yeah, I think like Trebillion was like one of the last ones. And that sounds right. I know Crozier was, a, um, and that's in some, some pedigrees, but it's, you know, that to me, those, are, it's sad to see those lines. It's sad to see those lines go, especially these, mm-hmm. these old historical lines. And, and, and you're right now, it all goes back to Phalaris. And there's even just a few eclipse sire lines that, that are outside of Phalaris are starting to um, to disappear. Just jumping around a little bit, first crop sires and their success. I think it is interesting just looking at the data, how first crop sires tend to, you know, tend to do really well. It's often their best year. And I guess it's just exposure to to good mares that first year? Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. I have read studies showing that um, young stallions and that and young stallions and mares tend to produce better that, you know, a horse's first few foals, uh, like a mare's first few foals and um, a stallion's first few couple of crops are going to generally be their best on average. Although, of course, you know, you have where Tappet just got flight line mm-hmm. uh, last year and so it's not necessarily a hard rule that Secretariat was out of a mare who was like 20 or something when she gave birth. I don't remember for sure. Yeah, she was definitely but, old. But right? she was an older mare. And so it's not, you know, and Bold hard, Ruler again, was old, another... right? I'm Bold Ruler from the 54 crop, right? So Bold Ruler yeah. must have been 19, is, you know, must have been, yeah, old, 21 or something when he was. Uh... Yeah, exactly. So on average, there have been studies showing that that is where you're going to get your best chance. And then again, commercially, that's also kind of everybody wants the hot new first crop sire because they haven't failed yet. Earlier in the week, Charles Simon and Sid Fernando, I guess that was last week, were talking about that kind of gravitation toward the first crop sires because they haven't they haven't done anything wrong yet. They haven't failed yet. They haven't proven that they aren't going to be a stallion yet. So that's the time for breeders to breed to them so that they can get those foals through the ring before their first two-year-olds hit the track. Because if their first two-year-olds don't pop off, then your horse is going to lose value. Um, you know, like the first two-year-olds of Curlin didn't didn't do much until they got older. And by that point, you know, he, he stood for, he, his feed dropped down to like 25,000. He got sold. And then, you know, two years later, he was the best thing. It, it took less than five years and he was standing for a hundred thousand dollars so it's kind of funny how how the market can be really fickle but it also is kind of the controlling factor of what makes a stallion in a lot of ways well so there's there's a lot there that i um that i want to to circle back to the the problem with the in in there is a lot there is a lot that at least anecdotally about birth order and you know, younger stallions, younger mares being more successful. The, the problem with the research is there's a there's um, only the stallions that are successful continue breeding a significant number of mares, and only the mares who are successful continue to in the breeding shed. And and so, you know, if you have a successful mare and she has a good horse in her first three foals, well, then she, they're going to keep breeding her, and often it's hard hard to attain. Uh, that success early whereas if a mare is does poorly with the first three foals and then she's cold right mm-hmm. and so so it does create a bias in terms of it, it does create a bias and so i don't yeah, know absolutely it would be interesting to really figure out how to answer that question properly mm-hmm. uh, the the first crop stallion thing i think is also really interesting and you're exactly right that you know when you're breeding you're trying to you, you're trying to get a successful sales horse, which is ultimately a successful racehorse. But to breed to a successful stallion costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And so you can breed a first crop stallion and you might catch that lightning in the bottle, right? You might catch Gunrunner. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that that because they've done nothing wrong, uh, that makes them super marketable. And so it, it's something where as a, as a breed to race guy, I've never really looked at these first crop sires, but as I've gotten more into this sales game, and I got to say, it's it's making this choice between breeding the race and breeding to sell. When you can sell a horse and turn a profit without going to the races, 
Uh, it's an incredible feeling. It's hard to make money at the races. So yeah, I, absolutely. It's almost impossible unless you're really like, especially, you know, you factor in the cost of care, caring for that horse that it absolutely makes sense why the mark, why like it, everyone tries to breed to sell because that's how you're going to actually be able to stay afloat in the business, really. Well, I mean, it takes, you know, you know, not only you, you, you know, your stallion fee, and the um the mayor but you know it's another fifty thousand dollars just even to get to the races right all Mm -hmm. that training from when they when they when they when they break them as yearlings to get to the races as two-year-olds there's just a lot you have in horses and so you know i I sold my first yearlings this year i sold a a munnings colt out of uh out of ant dot dot that i had by the time we got to the sale i had you know maybe 50 grand in the horse total Right. And so, and mm-hmm. I sold for 225. And, and how many, how many times can you race a horse and make a six figure score? I mean, it is, it is rare for someone who's owned a lot of race horses, uh, especially from inception, right? When you're, when you're raising yeah. a horse. So it is, it is, I, you know, I totally get it from that standpoint. I totally get the attractiveness of the first tier stallions. Yeah, it is absolutely, it is, it is interesting though, because we've had a lot of, you know, like Gunrunner, it'll be interesting to see if you can replicate his year last year. Uncle Mo, right, had was a phenomenon his first year. But even mm-hmm. if I sort of looking down at the lists, even, you know, horses who, you know, one of my favorite stallions is Tonalist, right? Because he throws mm-hmm. long dirt. And Tonalist's first first crop, they were very fast in, in the in terms of the data set I keep, you know, how how fast their runners were on dirt. He was in the top 10. And so you, you generally see on that top 10 list, well, Curlin and Tappet are always you know one two you know always in the top five but then in the top 10 you always you have a a couple first year stallions who are up there their first year and then drop off right Mm -hmm. and and i guess it's you know in part they're getting such good mares i know for example to to um, breed to olympiad this year they had 350 mares to choose from right Mm -hmm. and so they're able to select you know what the the top mares so it's an interesting uh interesting decision making process were you surprised by curlin's success i mean he's not his female family wasn't much yeah um i don't know i think a lot of that is going kind of on that like smart site strike deputy minister cross that's been really good in other courses that i cannot think of right now but i know it's i know it has been a successful cross in other horses and realistically in hindsight i'm kind of surprised that curlin has been so good because a lot of the times like these stallions that are just like iron horses the way he was don't end up reproducing themselves. But I think it's great for the breed that, that he has. Curlin is a phenomenon. And and I think in part, what's interesting about him is he's so successful, despite the fact that races have been shortening up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel like if there were, you know, I've been a big proponent of having like a marathon dirt series and having a, a, an eclipse award for champion stayer. And I would think that, people who stand stallions like Curlin, I mean, the Curlins would dominate those races. You look oh, at Mount, you look at Mount eighth races at Saratoga. It's, you know, you're basically looking for the Curlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I mean, any, any thoughts about, you know, like racing is it's, it's evolved over the last, you know, obviously over the last hundred years, but over the last 30 years to where it's been, uh, you know, the distances are getting shorter, you know, any, any thoughts on that and what it might mean for the breed? Yeah, I think, I think it's a shame. Also, another thing that I think, you know, it's just, it just kind of is what it is, I guess, but it really, we're continually breeding more, more sprinters, more speed horses, horses that are just going to go out and go as fast as they can. And even like in the Derby that, you know, dosage used to be a huge deal of, oh, well, this horse's dosage suggests uh, that, you know, and dosage being based on, a uh, number of stallions that were designated based on the the distance that their foals wanted their foals and their lines wanted to run, and dosage was kind of a measure of how much of each of these stallions they got. And it used to be I don't, don't remember what the the threshold was, but it was like if if your horse has a do- dosage of higher than this, then that horse is a sprinter and can't can't win the Derby. And that's just been completely obliterated over the last twenty years or so. And. Yeah. The, the Any pedig- horse can get a mile and a quarter. It's just a matter of who gets it fastest. <laughs> yeah, in, in part, right? If everyone is not is is less stoutly bred, then it doesn't. It's not as meaningful. The the dosage theory 
it was the theory that uh, you know they they used uh, stallions who were important influences on the breed, and they ranked them based upon the the distance that their offspring ran. So they would fall in the categories of brilliant, meaning they threw sprinters, intermediate, classic. What would be the other classic? There's and they're they're two route ones. I mean, they so you so rarely see them. Like professional was one of the, one of the categories, and then there was another category category of even further stare. And so it was one of the it's it's the way that dosage was was determined was that any they had come up with this is an old theory, but I guess it was reintroduced in the 1980s. And through backwards induction, through through application, they found that no Derby winner had ever had a dosage index of over four. Which the higher the index would mean, the higher the index means a more speed dominated family. And so, about the time that that this theory came out, you had two big favorites in the Derby: Chiefs Crown in 1985 and Snow Chief in 1986, who both had dosage above the threshold, and neither of them won. And the theory really caught on, was talked about in the Derby broadcast. Chiefs Crown was a horse that was favorite in the Derby. Preakness at Belmont and lost each race, and but was a previous champion two-year-old. And Snow Chief was fairly indifferently bred California horse who got caught up in a ridiculous pace duel and then came back and won the Preakness and was champion three-year-old that year over Ferdinand and uh, Manila, who was uh, won the Breeders' Cup turf. And Snow Chief was probably just the victim of a of a fast pace. But by the it was Strike the Gold was the first uh, winner, so. You know, within five years, that the theory was was debunked, and in part, you know, it looks at stallions pretty far back in the pedigree. And I don't know to the extent it's been, you know, it's been updated. But like Northern Dancer fit two categories; they have them listed as brilliant and classic. Sir Ivor was intermediate and classic. So those are those are you know they would put those together and, and come up with a score. But you know, I, I guess the 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 overall thing is that the, the changing nature of pedigree and like you're saying, well, suddenly we have an into mischief derby winner, you know, maybe what we wouldn't have thought possible but when the, the dynamics of the stallion lines are changing and you have fewer curlins who people breed to then. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's, I don't, I can't even think of a, I mean, can you even think of a poor man's curlin? Looking at lucky. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, look at tonalist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Tonalist and looking at Lucky. So that's, yeah, that's why I mean, I mean, I love looking at Lucky, right? I've owned 15 of them. So yeah, so those would be the the, the two poor man's uh, curlins. But they're, they're not, neither of them are marketable. And looking yeah, at Lucky absolutely. has, looking at Lucky has great stats. And is throwing a Derby winner and a Breeders' Cup winner. And yet, you know, he's got no market. Yeah, absolutely. You can get to him for 10K, like, which I think is, is silly. He sires close to, if not over 70% winners, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, well, all those, I mean, the route stallions, they tend to get better as they get older, too. So looking at Lucky's tonalists and curlings, they often tend not to peak until they're five, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so as a result, you know, the, the no no one's going to want to waste that kind of, you know, no one's going to want to make that kind of investment and mm-hmm. and, and and look for, you know, and, and, and basically, you know, wait until they're four or five or you just sort of sit on a slow horse, right? Yeah, I, you exactly. Know, I don't know what to Know what you it uh, still costs money to keep that horse at that point. So were you for limiting book size? Yes. Uh unequivocally, yes. <laughs> I think Wait. that um the huge book sizes are A, they're unnatural. B, they are just so limiting the genetic diversity of the breed. So last year I looked through the old report of mares bread, and you could go back to nineteen ninety-seven. And in ninety-seven you had 5,100 individual stallions who bred uh, 60,000 mares. There were 32 stallions who covered over 100 mares. Woodman covered the most with 174. Those 32 stallions bred 6.2% of the total mares bred. In 2020, instead of 5,100 individual stallions, you had 1,400 individual stallions breed half as many mares. 90 stallions covered over 100 mares led by Uncle Mo with 262, those 90 stallions bred 44.4% of mares, and the top 32 stallions by mares bred covered 20% of the mares, whereas in 97, the top 32 stallions by mares bred covered 6% of the mares. And I just can't see how that is a good thing 
in any way for the genetic diversity of the breed that you are just concentrating all of the top stallions get all of the good mares and it seems like there will be like a point where you cannot outcross because the only good horses the only good blood has been so concentrated that you'll just you'll end up i feel like you've got that's where you end up with having you know soundness problems and inheriting the negative traits as well as all these positive traits so i think that the idea of limiting book size was a great one to try and you know increase the diversity of the breed and i also kind of thought that it would you know increase the value of those top stallions that that would be something that you could you could frame as being positive for the big farms because i mean if into mischief can only breed 140 mares then what can you charge per mare to breed to into mischief but apparently it was it was not popular with those big farms so yeah it was a weird deal right it 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 came out of nowhere and then disappeared just as fast right mm-hmm. so it's 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 one of these typical horse racing things right it's it's it's, it's a rule rule is conjured out of thin air yeah and then you know and no one knows what who's behind it right like you know and the whip rule like just we're getting conjured out of thin air and then in the in the limiting the book 100 140 mares that disappeared just as quickly i, I was i struggle with it philosophically because i as a breeder i did worry that it was going to make going to any stallion more expensive Right. So that it was mm-hmm. going to it was a way, you know, I thought it was a way for stallions to basically restrict access, restrict supply and raise their prices. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, to me, that is was somewhat worrisome. I've often wondered if artificial insemination is not, you know, it's something that's not done in thoroughbreds, which is it's weird that we're an agricultural pursuit mm-hmm. right, in many ways and that we restrict the breeding you know, you don't have any other, you don't have any other, um, any other ag pursuit where they actually, you know, have anything similar to a, a book size limiting, at least as far as I know. And, and I don't know. And I, I'm wondering if there's a way to increase genetic diversity through AI because of increased access. I, I don't know, but that's not, I, I don't think that's that artificial insemination is not in the cards either, but it's, yeah, it's, no. it's an, it's an interesting, you know, that's interesting in terms of kind of what, in some ways we're already, already there, right. With a lack of genetic diversity. Any interesting, you know, new stallions, stallions, I, I was going to ask this is two parts, but, uh, you know, stallions who have their first two-year-olds coming up and then uh, new stallions, any ones that you're particularly excited about? I'm really curious and excited about the Flame Away babies. I think that he, um, his racetrack performance was kind of what you want to see from a stallion. He had early speed. He also was a horse who had a lot of tenacity and gameness that he could, another horse could go with him and he would still finish up. He wasn't, you know, at the top of his class. But I'm really excited for his babies. Physically, he's a really good-looking horse. And I absolutely adore his pedigree, that he's actually, you know, line-bred to his tail female line because he's from Johannesburg's Family 2F. And there's a lot of other interesting stuff going on with his pedigree that I like a lot. So I'm, I'm very excited about the Flame Away babies. I think that he's a great value. I think that breeders who bred to him early are going to be rewarded. I'm also... Really curious. I think that, you know, his his first his first crop are three-year-olds this year, but I think that Accelerate is going to heat up. I think that when his babies get older, that they're going to start doing well. He already has a stakes winner as a two-year-old, which is pretty impressive for a horse who really was his best at five and six. And then the new stallions, I'm really excited about a lot of them, honestly. I think Life is Good is going to be a great stallion. I'm very excited about Jackie's Warrior as well. He doesn't have what would necessarily, I mean, at least on the bottom, doesn't have like a commercially exciting pedigree. AP 500, I had never heard of AP 500 (laughs) before Jackie's Warrior, but AP 500 is actually from the same female family as Distorted Humor. So I think that's a really fascinating dynamic there in his pedigree. And I think that with his speed and his, the fact that he was a grade one winner at two, three, and four gives him a really good chance to be a, an exciting stallion. Yeah, he's got he's McLean's music out of an mm-hmm. AP five hundred mare, uh, and he's got uh, you know I guess that AP five hundred mare has Seattle Slough is three by three the Seattle Slough. Just looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on Flightline? I think Flightline better be a good stallion. <laughs> he's going to get <laughs> like he's going to get the best mares. I do like he does have a a great pedigree, but I think that he is going to be such a like high risk reward. I don't think that there is. I think it's almost 
impossible that he produces him. He reproduces himself that uh, I think he will be a, a good stallion, but I, I would be very surprised if he doesn't kind of drop back down into a, a reasonable stud fee after his first couple of years, maybe more. I think he could still be like a 50, 75 K type stallion, but I, I just, I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up just justifying that high stud fee early on. But I think it's a much better chance that he's not going to than that he will. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't think of any stallion that we've had that has started with his stud fee and been successful. Now there's so few, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, like you know, like I guess the last one with these high expectations is American Pharaoh. Yeah, and Justify. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think either. I don't think either. It's hard to like the justifies. I'm still very interested to see if they can go long. Verifying's big race the other day was was promising. The justifies numbers are pretty good in terms of his racehorse racehorse performance, but his average winning distance was extremely is you know is still six point oh, and mm-hmm. still extremely low for this time of year. Any any stallions that you you regret that died too young? Horse that never actually got to stand as a stallion, but I rap comes to mind immediately as a tis now half brother to Spitestown. I think that was, could have been one of the biggest losses. He, I was so excited for him as a stallion because uh, Spitestown already has another brother, uh, Fibersond standing in West Virginia, who by unbridled song, who's one of my favorite stallions in the country, honestly, as an East coaster that, you know, Fibersond stands for a thousand dollars and he's had three great, he's produced three different graded stakes winners. Two of them were full siblings, to be fair. But mm-hmm. like this, the Silk and Cat family was proven that she could throw a stallion. And I think Irap, I don't think we ever got to see the best of him. And I, I think he would have been a really exciting, really good stallion. And I also think that um, losing Arrogate so young, that especially as his uh, offspring seem to be the type that get better with age, that I think that was a big loss as well. That Fiber Sun, I mean, he's like his average winning distances. Are they mostly like Charlestown? I, Charlestown four and a half. Cause I think his average yep. winning distance is like, I've, it's, I've never seen a horse so low, but his numbers are good. I agree with you. It's like numbers are good. I never heard of him, but then I, you know, I see his average winning distance is like around five, right? Yeah, so no, that, a, that makes total sense. That means that honestly, for, for a Charlestown horse, that means they're basically routers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, he can get a horse to go a mile and an eighth. That's he's, that's where he had, you know, run into love you. And then Moadib ran second in the Charlestown classic this past year to art collector. So, you know, but he was a really cool horse. Uh, he, I mean, he still is, but I I've always really liked Fibersond. He just is dominant among West Virginia stallions. So I really would have liked uh, IRAP to have gotten a chance, especially, you know, I think he could have been, you know, potentially the one to carry on the tis now sire line. Do you have a, do you have a favorite breed to race the affordable stallion? Well, Fibersond, looking at Lucky, is definitely one of my favorites. I like to include a lot. Those kind of, those three all come to mind off the top of my head. Well, good. I mean, those are horses I love. I mean, we have a we have a son of of uh, looking at Lucky named Ian Clover, who broke his maiden in the, in the last race of his two-year, you know, the last race of 2022 at Oakland Park. So it's a two-year-old and he'll be running in a allowance race on saturday actually before i post this allowance race at the fairgrounds on saturday and then you know if he wins you know who knows right it's you know when you when you have a when you have a young three-year-old that's broken his maiden as a colt and is by looking at lucky and went one first out going six furlongs at at, a, at oakland park you know you might have anything so at yeah, this absolutely. point at this, at this point we're dreaming and and uh you know especially with with looking at lucky it would be extremely meaningful well look i appreciate uh you joining us tell us a little bit about kind of what you're up to now i know you've started a business and are doing some writing tell tell the listeners a little bit about what you're up to now yeah so i decided to swap from my old uh wordpress blog and start a, a substack blog uh it's hawkstonebloodstock.substack.com um, I do a post every week. Uh, two of those posts are just free for everyone. And then every other week I do sort of a deep dive. So far, I've just done stallion analysis, but I'll kind of go into some other stuff as well. Just kind of a much more deep dive sort of analysis into pedigree related topics. And then I also, I am available for, you know, bloodstock con- consultations and things like that. I'm hoping to get a website up in the next month or two where I can 
direct people to that, but it's, it will all be under uh, Hawkstone bloodstock. Well, excellent. Well, again, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate everything. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.